Hi, this is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. Today, I have the great pleasure of speaking with uh, two uh, very good uh, friends and colleagues and uh, very well-recognized figures in the field of gynecologic oncology, uh, Dr. Mary Lateo, who is in the Department of Surgery at Memorial Sloan Kettering in, in uh, New York City, and uh, Dr. Andreas Overmeyer, who is at the Center for Clinical Research, University of Queensland in uh, Brisbane, Australia. Uh, it is always a pleasure to speaking with them. I always learn a great deal from them. And the topic of this discussion is going to be the new FIGO staging for endometrial cancer 2023. As many of you in the audience are very familiar with uh, some of the um, controversial topics that have been raised regarding the FIGO staging, we felt that this was a, a very pertinent and timely uh, podcast. So therefore, obviously, we elected to have this discussion with these two very well-recognized uh, figures in gynecologic oncology. So Mario, Andreas, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Pedro. Happy to be here. Excellent. Well, thank you for, for your time to both of you. Um, as you know, we have lots of topics to discuss. Uh, for each of these questions, you know, certainly I'll, I'll, I'll direct them at, uh, at one of you, but certainly for the other, feel free to chime in if you have any um, additional comments on that particular uh, question. And um, the first question, I'll start with you, Mario, and I'll ask you just simply, um, let's start by discussing what does or should a staging classification offer? Yeah, you know, staging is really uh, to help us all sort of try to classify our tumors in terms of the, the tumor extent and or spread. That's really what it should be. And actually, it should be as simple as possible. And very complex staging systems really offer no user-friendly abilities and very hard to interpret and very hard to keep track. So really, you know, the simpler the, stage, the staging system, actually, the better. It should not be a prognostic uh, sort of... Uh, hodgepodge of factors that have been published here or there uh, to, that might sort of give prognosis. Um, it also should not be something that includes histology. That's something I've never seen in my life where histology is factored into a staging system. Um, it'd be like cutaneous melanoma staging. And now you give it a, a vulvar melanoma stage three because it does worse than stage stage one cutaneous. So, you know, it really needs to not be uh, most of what I'm going to say is what it should not be, I guess. It should not include histology, should not include sort of evolving prognostic markers because there are many out there. Uh, it really should be a way to define tumor extent, both locally and where there is spread, and then divide that into relatively simple stage groupings where the outcomes are somewhat more predictable. Excellent. So a great start to, to this discussion. Andreas, did you have anything else to add to that? Look, I might just add that the figure staging, since its inception in the 1950s and 60s, um, and I, I accept that hardly any one of us uh, will remember that, um, it always stuck to that, what Mario said, that uh, it's meant to define the extent of the disease. This is the first time uh, in the FIGO staging um, that other factors that are meant to be prognostic came into this system. 
I'm not quite sure if this was an intentional change. Uh, if this was intentional, then it certainly would have been the biggest change since figure staging system existed. It may have been unintentional, in which case it may have been a lack of judgment, but certainly also a lack of uh, stakeholder engagement. And just one more, if I can tell one more thing too, real quick. You know, also we we need to keep in mind that at least in the U.S., we use uh, the AJCC system a lot, the TNM system, um, and actually our pathologists now are required to report TNM stage for all cancers, including our gynecologic cancers. And there's absolute, and usually there's been somewhat of a good correlation between the TNM system and FIGO, and now there's absolutely almost no correlation or very poor correlation between the two. So what are we to do with this? new system of staging quote unquote that figo has proposed which is really not a staging system it's a it's it's um i think i think there was an ambition to create uh, a comprehensive classification system but it has nothing to do with staging Agreed. Yes. so i think the, these are really great points and uh we're going to elaborate on some of those uh uh, through the course of this discussion. Um, I'll continue with you, Andreas, and ask you, you know, certainly, why should there be a change to the staging classification? In other words, what was the problem with the previous one? Pedro, I think that's a very good question. I'm not sure, but uh, I'm not aware of any major problems with the 2009 staging system. I think it worked quite well. The only criticism that was aired sometimes was that cytology dropped out, peritoneal cytology, because in some institutions, they still felt that they want to do that. Um, um, and, and there was just controversial data about it. The only other change that the 2009 staging system did is they merged uh, cases where there was no myelin invasion with minimal myelin invasion or myelin invasion less than 50%, they merged that. And some people were not happy with that, uh, especially when it comes to histological subtypes. Um, but otherwise, I, I couldn't identify uh, a major issue with the 2009 staging system. Very well. So let's actually, let's go down the list. Let's start with stage one and I'll, I'll start with Mario. Um, I see that there were a lot of comments, uh, and obviously we know in social media there was a significant amount of uh, feedback um, regarding stage one. So there are several issues with uh, stage one, including the use of lymphovascular space invasion, some kind of like nondescript terminology such as good prognosis disease, and also metastases to the ovaries in a stage one. Uh, what are your thoughts about this? Yeah, uh, yeah. where do I start here? Well, one, first off, I think that using criteria that are uh, very subject to interpretation uh, is is fraught with problems, like LVSI. I mean, the, the, the distinction of LVSI but pathology, there's been lots of papers that show the heterogeneity between pathologists is ginormous. Uh, I mean, we've done papers and work with uh, the Mayo Clinic, our friends there, uh, looking at our endometrial cancer cases. For some reason, the, the rate of LVSI at, at the Mayo Clinic is is maybe a fraction is a small fraction of what we have here at MSK. It's not that they're seeing less LVSI. I think it's just that the diagnostic criteria are, are are problematic and subject to interpretation. So I think 
even for a prognostic system to use something that isn't so clearly reproducible is problematic and it definitely should not be part of stage. Um, also, if you really look at the data, LVSI is really just a risk for lymph node metastasis. If you have negative nodes, you really, who cares about the LVSI, to be honest with you, for a lot of different things that we look at. So I think that's a huge problem for even a prognostic system, never mind staging system. You know, uh, good prognosis disease, I, I, I mean, that's what stage one is supposed to be. So, I, you know, I, I don't know what that means or, or how to really comment on it. One would assume that the stage one cancer is the best prognosis of all the stages. So somewhat redundant there. Um, and then, you know, uh, metastasis to the ovary. <laughs> it's an unnecessary thing to do because, you know, we are yet learning about this. And the criteria that they give to make it a stage 1C or whatever stage it is, it's so hard to follow this. Uh, or what? what is a 1A3 yeah, I mean, it's just so confusing. It's 1A3 versus what they have here as a 3A and the criteria and the footnotes, which are extensive. Uh, I don't know that we agree with those criteria as to what defines, you know, true 1A3 versus state. I mean, you're going to have a hodgepodge of staging, which actually will turn out to be all over the place and really not uh, synchronous to what's happening. On top of that, why 1A3? Where did the 1A3 decision come from? I saw no concordance indices to define outcome to say it should be a 1A3. Why wouldn't it be maybe a 1B, a 1C? It seems very arbitrary of a decision to make it 1A3. And that's true for the other many of the other sort of uh, new criteria in this in this quote unquote staging system. Yeah. And and I'll um, I'll continue with, with you on um the with stage 1b uh where the staging reports that these are non-aggressive histologies um what does that mean and you know they 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 go on to also refer to clear cell as an example as a high grade histology there's a lot of literature i think in uterine cancer that doesn't really support that that you know clear cells tend to behave not so high grade as they do in ovary uh any thoughts on that yeah, I, I just think as a general statement that histology should absolutely not be part of a staging system like this. This is really, this is ridiculous. You really need to know it's a, steer, a serious cancer and then the extent of that tumor spread being a serious or carceral sarcoma. This also is now lumping all these non, these aggressive histologies as into one bucket. Who said that serious carceral sarcoma clear cells all behave the same? I mean, it's really kind of silly to say that all the quote unquote aggressive subtypes all will behave the same with the same extent. So it really makes no sense. It really should not be done. Also on top of that, how are we gonna compare outcomes from prior staging, using prior staging systems to outcomes now with this crazy staging system, which the majority of our aggressive histotypes will be all be starting as a stage 2C because the only stage one aggressive histology is if they have no myoinvasion, which is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, I think a stage one serous carcinoma behaves differently than a stage two is true cervical involvement. Um, and I think that this should absolutely be removed from the staging system and kept as a staging system for extent of tumor. And then with the, you know, the further defined by the histology, it's very similar to what we did for sarcomas. We have a Lyomar sarcoma staging system and we have an endometriostromal sarcoma staging system. And that's what it should be mm. if they feel it, it, it should be. Um, but, you know, that's a that's a different conversation. Yeah. Andreas, any any thoughts on the uh, histology? 
in anticipation of critique of what Mario said, I would just want to say that, of course, histopathological types, cell types need to be recorded, but separately. It has nothing to do with the extent of the disease. All these things need to be recorded, but shouldn't be part of a staging system. Yeah. And, and as a, as a follow-up to that, before we leave this early stage, uh, Andreas, I'll ask you, um, how are we to manage patients interested in future fertility under this new staging system? Well, Pedro, I'm not sure because, <laughs> because the, the, the crux is how do we define eligibility criteria? So, for example, there are patients with stage 1A3 disease that Mario just said, we're not quite sure what that means, uh, versus uh, 1B, uh, who are then eligible, but others are not eligible. Like patients with 1A3 would not be eligible, but stage patients with stage 1B would be eligible. That just really doesn't make sense. Um, so I think uh, fertility preservation is going to have a hard time. Uh whoever uses uh, this new system. Yeah. So I'll, I'll continue with you, Andreas, and let's move on to stage two. Um, you know, Mary alluded to the discrepancy among pathologists in defining lymphovascular invasion. And, and for stage two, there was a, a terminology used as substantial lymphovascular space invasion defined as greater than five vessels involved. How can we assure that there's going to be accuracy of definition among pathologists when you're getting into that granular detail of definition? Yeah, look, I can see that the the, the figure staging committee um, gave it some thought on LVSI, and in principle, I agree that LVSI is a is a poor prognostic factor and is associated with poor prognosis. Uh, as Mario already said, it's very very difficult to quantify. Um, so I think there are challenges there. I think uh, we need to, uh, I don't mind defining LVSI, um, but the the question will be how do we quantify it? And, and again, um, running the risk of sounding boring, it needs to be regarded as a separate variable that has nothing to do with the extent of the disease. It is a prognostic factor. Um, but it doesn't specify the extent of the disease. Great. So I want to jump actually into uh, the topic of the molecular classification, and I'll go to Mario uh, next. Um, in one statement of the new staging system, Figo goes on to say, without molecular classification, High-grade endometrioid endometrial cancers cannot be appropriately allocated to a risk group. Yet they go on to say, quote, when available and feasible, molecular classification should be performed. So I wanted to ask you, what is the message here for low and middle-income countries where this is not feasible? Well, I mean, you can already just from the question imply what the answer will be. You know, I mean, it, it, you can't have a, a staging system from a, 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 a an international group that is supposed to have uh, the ability to apply care and, and standards to a more worldwide population and only and, and start to include criteria or prognostic factors that can only be done by those who can afford it. Um, you know, I think this is a 
well, we'll talk more about the molecular stuff, but uh, it's a huge mistake. Uh, uh, and of course, one of the biggest mistakes is that these things cannot be done in every country. And therefore, how are we going to then interpret outcomes for a stage whatever based on molecular classification to a stage not molecular classified in different parts of the world? Um, this is just going to create a tremendous amount of confusion and actually will muddle our understanding of this cancer using such a system. Yeah. And actually, as a follow-up uh, question from uh, Seda Sahin Akar in, uh, in Turkey, she, I think, brings up a very good point. Um, even when you can do molecular classification, we're, we're not really at a point yet where we have concrete recommendations based on the molecular classification. So how does this impact the you know the, this algorithm of the staging and molecular classification yeah you know i'm 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 a very, i'm a big proponent for doing research and learning more about our cancers that we treat and i think it's very important we continue to do the research in molecular classification but this is such a premature step we really you know we used to say that you know we can't use that type 1 type 2 endometrial cancer because that's too simplified you know the four stages is you know not 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 complex enough but now all of a sudden we i've learned all about endometrial cancer with four molecular classification groups that makes zero sense we also are learning that you know the four molecular classification groups from tcga are not the same that we are classifying using the promise technique yes there's there it's a surrogate but it's not the same okay so you're going to be classifying cases differently to a, mm -hmm. to a percentage okay also these things are also fraught with problems they don't always work uh, P53 immunohistochemistry does not always correlate with a P53 mutation. Many of these studies in molecular classification are a hodgepodge of stage and histology. Also, again, going back to this fruit salad of cases and then trying to outcome. So if you look at poly cases, they're usually low-grade, low-risk cases anyhow. And you look at the P53 cases, they're usually high-grade, high-risk cases. So, you know, really molecular classification should be an adjunct to stage. Uh, to see if it can help us de de determine prognosis. And then more importantly, what people forget, and these are just all prognostic. None of these things have been shown to be predictive of intervening with therapy. And everyone's made the jump that all of a sudden we can de-escalate for one group or escalate for another group with zero data to support that. You cannot jump from a prognostic factor to a predictive factor automatically without doing the research. And again, now we're learning that even these well, first off, it's only three groups, by the way. There's poly, there's P53, and then the other two are in the same, whether you call it an NSMP or you call it copy number low or whatever you call it. We're not even calling it the same thing. You know, those two do the same, okay? And our own recent data we've done for grade three endometrial stage one staged, surgically staged stage one, the only factor that made a difference in prognosis and outcome was P53. The other three did all the same. So, and then you look at the, copy number lows and non-specific, the NSMPs, again, two different sort of groupings. We're now learning that there's different clads and different groupings within that group that predict or are prognostic of outcome. So to think that we have now figured out the best way to prognosticate outcome based on four simple groupings is really naive in my opinion. I fully support continued research. I think this is an important aspect of what we're doing. Very, very important, actually, um, and it will be the future, but this is just way too soon, way too premature, and actually very naive to think that we know what we're doing with this stuff yet.
Yeah, and, and Mario, this next question comes from one of our other fellows, Giuseppe Cucinella, and, uh, you know, given your expertise with rare tumors as well, um, he he is concerned about this blanket classification of aggressive versus non-aggressive tumors. And he's asking, you know, are we to make decisions on tumors like, for example, a high-grade endometrioid being lumped in the same category as a carcinosarcoma? Do those tumors behave very similarly? Well, we touched on this before. This this whole grouping, you know, it's kind of going back to the old Bachman type one and type two. Now you have aggressive and non-aggressive. I mean, what's the difference, right? You you you're going back to a flawed system, you know. And now you're lump. You're saying that all these aggressive types that you've they've defined as aggressive all do the same, and that's simply not the case. And also, you know how so so basically the only almost all these cases are going to be stage 2C, unless you have the funds to do molecular profiling, then they may be a 1A holy mutant or whatever. <laughs> so how, so in other parts of the world, these will all be 2C cases. In, in my, at MSK, there'll be 1A poly mutant. How do you compare those? How do you compare outcomes? How do you know what is the best thing to do around the world? I mean, it just, it makes no sense. So here there'll be a 1A poly mutant case and everywhere else there'll be a 2C. How does that make any sense, uh, in my opinion, in my my simple way of thinking? So, yeah, I, I really, I get that folks want to try to do the best thing. And, of course, we're being very critical of this. And, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking syndrome is always an issue. But um, I think this is just the wrong step for a staging system. And even for a prognostic system, we have way more to go and way more to learn before we can sit here and start saying that we actually know how to accurately prognosticate all these cases. So then now, uh, Andrea, I'll I'll I'll, uh, I'll jump to you and uh, ask you the question on you know, as as you mentioned in the beginning, uh, staging is about keeping it simple and and giving you the extent of disease. And this question is from uh, Luigi De Vitis, who says. You know, about 5% of low-grade endometrial cancers can have P53 abnormal. And in such a circumstance, then one could potentially have a staging of a 2C mutant P53 abnormal. This is, this is quite an extensive classification for basically a low-grade tumor. Um, is it reasonable to upstage a low-grade tumor based on this p53 abnormality pedro i think i think that there is a lot of mix up and confusion going on um when you go back to the to the paper um i read something out to you the addition of molecular subtype evaluation to the staging criteria should be performed as it allows a better prediction of prognosis in a staging slash prognosis scheme so they don't make a differentiation between the staging and the prognostic thing. Even if we would assume that we know everything about prognostic factors, and even if we would assume that even if we buy into the myth that we have defined the prognostic factors sufficiently enough, it doesn't mean that the patients then need treatment because the question is not whether the patient's are doing worse or, or, or better or whatnot. The question is uh, whether the patient actually benefit from more treatment. So I completely agree with um, 
that this is a little bit muddled up. Um, and as Mario said, we shouldn't be too harsh, but we also need to be clear um, about what the what the traps are of this system are. And this system is unfortunately not a staging system, but it's a it's it's a mixture of staging prognostics system, and that should have been flagged. Um, yeah. So th this next question, Andreas, I'll direct to you. This comes from Jessica Mauro. Um, she's currently now a fellow in uh, in Italy. And she says, you know, with this new classification of stage two, am I to treat these two patients the same? A tumor that is less than 50% myometrial invasion with cervical involvement versus a tumor that goes almost all the way up into the serosa with cervical invasion. Are these to be treated the same? I would agree with Jessica. I think that's a very good pickup and a very good question. Uh, stage 2B uh, is cases with substantial LVSI regardless of local tumor spread, which uh, I personally think uh, is inadequate. Yeah. Um, Matt Wager from uh, Wisconsin. He asked, many of the studies referenced here are demonstrated favorable prognosis for poly ultramutated tumors often have a small absolute number of patients included in these analyses, alluding to what Mario was saying before. Certainly, the initial TCGA analysis only identified 17 total patients in the poly ultramutated favorable group. Are these small retrospective cohorts studies enough to make an argument for staging and treatment de-escalation in these patients? Pedro, the answer should be very clear. It's obviously not enough. Um, and these are retrospective studies. And we would hopefully all agree that based on retrospective studies, we shouldn't base treatment recommendations. Maybe with poly, uh, there is a special situation here because we're basically proposing that poly patients will virtually never recur or something like that. However, um, EN10, uh, otherwise known as TAPER, is underway and will help us clarify the issue. Uh, TAPER will have uh, a very high number of cases, um, and I think we're going to learn a big deal from TAPER, and I would congratulate the the investigators on TAPER to do this study, and I think it would be very useful to know about that, but this is way, way too early uh, and intellectually also, also insufficient to cut that bridge. Mario, this question is uh, again from uh, Matt Wager, and um, he's interested in the fact that, you know, we keep talking about poly and P53, and he seems to be concerned about the fact that going along this theme, they kind of forgot about hormone receptor status and HER2 status. What happened there? Uh, that's an excellent point. You know, I mean, I think this uh, these, this TCGA-based uh, molecular classification is the new hot thing. So everyone's all excited about it, as we all tend to be in oncology. When there's a new hot thing, we all jump on that bandwagon. But he's absolutely true. Why not include HER2 new status for our serous cancers? And then where do you put that? You know, um, ERPR, we're looking now at the within the non the NSMPs or copy number low, whichever you use, you know, we'll use copy number low here because we have molecular genomic information on all our cases here, you know, so 
we are fortunate that we can do the appropriate TCGA based stuff. But, you know, within that group, we're seeing that ER and PR status will differentiate prognosis in that group. So why not include that group? And so you can really become very muddled and very confused if you continue down this pathway. At what point do you stop integrating prognostic biomarkers into a staging system? It really becomes super confusing. It will be ever-changing on a regular basis that will never, it'll never be a useful system for learning and sort of grouping outcomes and learning how to best to treat patients. It really is a, a, a tremendous mistake. And, you know, again, they, they've chosen the, the, the new hot topic biomarkers, but have forgotten about the old tried and true markers, which I don't think they should be included, by the way. Uh, but it's a very good point. And there's other emerging. Why not catenin? Uh, why have the questions that have been published that have been <laughs> prognostic? There's so many out there. Um, it, I think, again, it's really just a, a quite a misstep. Andreas, you had some comments about that? I have a question to, to our listeners. Let's assume you've got a stage 3C high-grade ovarian carcinoma. And we say it's a stage 3C high-grade ovarian carcinoma. Some patients will be BRCA positive. Other patients would be BRCA negative. Who of our listeners would think because she's BRCA positive, she should be a stage one? <laughs> I just put the question out there. Excellent. Well, we'll 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 wait for uh, for the responses through uh, our channels and social media, and uh, and I think that a uh, very valid point. Um, <laughs> What, wanted to ask uh, Mario, and I don't know if you're still doing this at Memorial, uh, Jessica Mauro is asking about cytology. Remember the emphasis on cytology and endometrial cancer. Um, she says positive peritoneal cytology is not considered for staging. In several institutions, it is still being performed. And in some cases, patients are getting further therapy because of this. What is your opinion as to whether this should be considered at all yeah you know we do do still do it here uh, of all things we do in surgery it's the least morbid and least financially toxic although there is cost to doing things like that but we still do it here and we you know whether it's part of a staging system i can actually say where it probably shouldn't be because you know we all know that there's positive cytology in a very low risk uterine feature uh case which probably means nothing and it shouldn't be a stage three like it used to be and then there's the serous carcinoma that has the positive cytology, which will probably do worse than a stage one without positive cytology, serous carcinoma. So we use uh, cytology uh, in combination with other features to decide if additional therapy is warranted and or the type of therapy. Um, now, whether that's the right thing to do, I can't sit here and quote level one evidence for that, but that's how we use it. And I think it probably shouldn't be part of a staging system because of the caveats of it it doesn't mean the same thing in every single uterine cancer case uh and does it should it be a stage three should it be a two should it be a one you know one cx or whatever i guess the way we're going but um um so that's how we use cytology we do do it uh we do use it uh but it's in, it, it's it's one of many features that we use or, or factors we use to decide on on to treat yes or no and then what kind of treatment very well. Andreas, this uh, question is from Giuseppe Cucinella, and he says, you know, we've been talking about molecular classification and how it's uh, so incredibly important now, 
is changing the staging of endometrial cancer. Uh, if the rainbow study or PORTEC 4A give us different or additional information, do we need to rechange the FIGO system again? Look, even running the risk of uh, this getting really boring, right? But we just really need to differentiate between what is the extent of disease, what is a prognostic factor, and what is a predictive factor. They are three very, very different terms. Um, and we just need to use them responsibly because they mean different things. If they wouldn't mean different things, it, we could use them just whatever we like. But we got to be very careful because um, we need to explain this to patients and we need to communicate uh, within our uh, within our community. So I think these things shouldn't be mixed up. If Rainbow shows that uh, patients with P53 mutations uh, are more uh, susceptible to chemotherapy, to what chemotherapy, well, then that's a predictive factor. It's not even a, progno a prognostic factor. Well, we know that P53 is a prognostic factor, but it shouldn't certainly come into the, into the staging. I reckon I've been, I've been playing with databases for a long time. I did my MD thesis on a database. Um, and what I learned from computer scientists even then was that you want, you want to, you want to avoid merging data fields, right? You want to collect as many data fields separately as you need. You can bring them together. Uh, if you need, you can create then artificially new data fields but you want to keep them separate because if you bring them together right to start with, you can't divide them up uh, in the end because you don't know what your data field actually means. So this is this is the 101 of databases, right? And in this case, I'm saying that because this is relevant to Giuseppe's question, uh, we need to keep staging, prognosis, predictive factors separate. And then our institutions or through collaborations, we can slice and dice them and bring them together and create meaning out of that. Yeah. Andres, I'll stay with you. I just have a couple more questions. This question is from Jorge Hegel in Venezuela. And he's basically asking, like, now with all of these options that go into the classification, like, what do you put the weight on? In other words, he's asking... You know, if you have a poly mutated patient with positive lymph nodes, do you go by the positive lymph nodes? Do you go by the poly status? Um, what, 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 where do we put the weight of, uh, of the findings? Well, I think Jorge is right, right on the money. Uh, it, this is unknown. Uh, I can't provide an answer because there is no answer. We know that there are poly mutated patients with positive nodes. None of us, uh, like if Mario has the answer, please speak up now. I would, I would like to know, but um, I don't think any one of us has the answer how poly relates to nodes, um, whether these patients need treatment afterwards, what, what all this means. We don't know, right? Um, hopefully, when we sit here in five years' time and, uh, and discuss uh, the next iteration of the figure staging system we we know a lot more about this but i think he's right on the money uh 
we don't we don't know all these things um yeah yeah, yeah Mary, do you have anything to add yeah well and i have no answers i mean if we, anybody thinks they have the answers it's probably wrong 99 percent of the time but um you know we actually published on our poly mutated cases here we had some that were stage three we had a 17 percent recurrence rate in our poly mutated cases that's been published uh, no one talks about that because it's not goes doesn't go along along the lines of the messages that everyone wants the other problem is that we keep talking about proper stage tumor extent that's why we can't abandon staging of these cases surgically whether central node or lymph nodes because this is one if you look at all these curves for prognosis which are the most separated curves it's the old figo one two three and four Lymph nodes are the one of the most prognostic factors that we have in endometrial cancer, without a doubt. And yet, we're we're we're, we're people are talking about abandoning this and just taking out the uterus and using molecular features. And then when these groupings are mostly representative of certain low risk versus high risk groupings, and then you have a few other cases alone, they're passengers, and the outcome for these groups are are driven by the majority of the cases that reflect. For P53, a higher risk histology, a higher stage. And they have a few lower stage, and now you're just lumping them all together and saying that the outcome is, is, is that outcome, but it's driven by the group that it represents. Similarly for Poli in all these studies, they're mostly grade one and two endometrioid stage one cases. There's a few higher risk cases in there, but the outcomes are driven mostly by the majority of the group that is represented by that molecular classification. So it's a tremendous problem to, uh, and I have a huge problem with folks who are talking about just taking the uterus out, molecular classifying, and we have the answer. I think that's going backwards in time and it's not adding to our knowledge. And that is the essence of a staging system. Has it spread to outside the organ? And now we're talking, people are talking about not even looking for that. <laughs> I, in, in response to that, I would like to say that I'm very happy to test that as part of clinical trials, and clinical trials are ongoing on that topic. Um, and to do that as part of a clinical trial, I think is fair. Uh, and there are about three or four uh, RCTs going on that examine the different uh, degrees of the extent of surgical staging. And I think that's perfectly fine. You do that uh, in, a, in an environment that is appropriate. But to infer uh, conclusions at this point in time, in 2023, is way, way too early. And if you consider that we have a responsibility to patients, to real patients, uh, then I think this is, um, I would feel very uncomfortable uh, treating my patients uh, based on these inferences that um that there is this myth that we know all about it and uh, i would question that myth excellent very well so obviously this has been uh, uh quite a, a a very heated uh discussion and and i think again you know we at the risk of being potentially accused of well this is the opinion of just two leaders um i think you know certainly your opinions are very reflective of the uh, of the general population as uh, as we've seen and, and heard as well um but i think you know the key question that i would like to ask is uh you're obviously leading figures in gynecologic oncology leading institutions are you going to use this new staging system so um 
we just um, we just published um, on on one of the social media platforms that Ender Three, which is the um, which is the RCT um, on Sentinel Node biopsy versus uh, no uh, Sentinel Node biopsy is not going to use the new staging system. We had a trial management committee a meeting recently and we decided that we're, we will not engage with it because we think it's inferior and it's not helpful and not useful. Uh, I published that decision on one of the social media platforms on LinkedIn um, and we had like enormous, enormous responses and some of the people say, look, I just completely understand we're also not going to use it. Um, so I'm not really claiming that I'm a leader in the field and whatnot. Um, I'm just saying that uh, when we look at what people say, uh, what stakeholders say, and gynecological oncologists worldwide are stakeholders, they don't seem to be happy with that. Mario? Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious. I, I really find that this staging system is not useful. It's not reproducible. It's too complex. It's too hard to remember. Um, I don't know what else to say. We're not using it currently here. We haven't changed anything we're doing here. And I'm not pimping into my fellows on the staging system, which, uh, you know, if I have to reread this for the 10th time to figure out what stage is what, uh, I'm going to lose my mind. So I think that, um, you know, um, I mean, I can't speak for my whole group. That'd be unfair. You know, uh, this is really what I, what I, what I do and what I see here at Zoomer board. We're not really restaging any of our cases. Yep. Um, very well. So thank you both so, so much for this very lively and interactive session. I am sure that this is going to be a highly acclaimed uh, podcast. I appreciate your time. And of course, obviously, your uh, wisdom and opinion and, uh, and your expertise. So we thank you again for accepting our invitation. Well, thanks, Peter, for having us. And, uh, and we, um, I certainly look forward to continuing the discussions. I could imagine that the discussions will continue uh, in Seoul and, uh, and at other conferences. And uh, I think discussions like that are very valuable uh, because they really impact directly on the patient's care that we deliver. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Pedro, for having me. I really appreciate it. And I, I, I agree 100% with what uh, Andrea said. And it's my honor to be here with both of you.